Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. All right, thanks for tuning in, everybody. This is the first part of our two-part pair of podcasts on TIA and stroke. We're going to cover TIA in this podcast and then stroke in the second part. Now, the overarching theme of these podcasts, well, I can describe in one word, and that word is timing. Timing, timing, timing. So what the heck am I talking about? What does timing have to do with TIA? Well, first, the clinical diagnosis of TIA and not getting duped by the common TIA mimics is all about the timing of onset, duration, and how the symptoms change over time. Next, the workup of TIA is very time-dependent. Why? Because the best treatment for some TIAs, that's endarterectomy, totally depends on how quickly you can identify the patients who fulfill the criteria for endarterectomy, and then how fast you can get it done. And that's not all about the timing of treatment of TIA. Dual antiplatelet therapy is the latest rage in TIA treatment. But the risk-benefit of dual antiplatelet therapy is all, again, about, you guessed it, the timing. And lastly, the disposition of your TIA patient all depends on the timing of how quickly you can get them worked up, either as an inpatient or outpatient. So it's all timing, timing, timing. And talking about timing, let's get on with the show. The live podcast recording at Grand Rounds in Toronto with Walter Himmel and David Deshensky. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the show the man with razor-sharp focus and clarity, QI master, chief of the ED Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Dr. David Deshensky. Welcome, Dave. Delighted to be here again, Anton. Thanks. And my main mentor and good buddy, who we all know and love, Dr. Walter Himmel. Great to be here, and boy, do I love this topic. So let's jump right into the first case. A normotensive 56-year-old male, 20-pack-year smoker, presents to your ED after an eight-minute episode of slurred speech, and that's about it. He describes no visual disturbances, no weakness, no paresthesias, no headache, no neck or face pain, no nausea, and is feeling well in the ED. His ECG shows atrial fibrillation at 86 beats per minute. So the first question goes out to the audience. Folks, ask yourselves, is this patient at high risk for stroke? So again, 56-year-old smoker, a few minutes of slurred speech and no other focal anything, normal BP, AFib. Now, Specifically, I'd like you to raise your hand if you think in the next 30 days, the risk for stroke is 1% or 2%, 10%, more than 20%. All right, Dr. Dushensky, what's this guy's risk for stroke? Well, it's a great question. And the answer, I think, is sort of, it depends a little bit. So, for any patient with atrial fibrillation, we know that they've got about four to five times the risk of stroke compared with a, an age match control. And if we look at patients who have strokes, one out of every three or four of those patients have atrial fibrillation and 80% of the cardioembolic strokes that we see are due to atrial fibrillation. 
With respect to this particular guy and his AFib, if you put him through a CHADS2 VASC scoring system, his risk is low, or at least it was until he had his TIA, which then converts him into a high-risk category under that scoring system. And if you look at, in general, at TIAs and stroke risks in patients with atrial fibrillation and just in general in terms of other conditions, there were some really important studies that came out between 97 and 2003 that showed that the 90-day stroke risk was in the neighborhood of 12 to 20% for these patients, with about half of them occurring within the first 48 hours. When those studies came out, it was really a wake-up call for the medical community, and in particular for emergency medicine, that these people were at much higher risk than we had previously assumed that they were. But things have evolved and changed over that time. And there was a, a paper study uh, published in the New England Journal in 2016 by Amarenko that actually looked at these patients and found that they had a 90-day rate of stroke and follow-up after TIA of only 4%, with only about 1% of those happening in less than 48 hours. But it's important to note that this was in the setting of rapid, aggressive secondary prevention and follow-up. So the answer to this question sort of depends on what your clinical response to this patient is actually going to be. All right. So what we do matters. And Dr. Jashensky, besides kind of guesstimating the, the patient's chance of a stroke in the next month, why is it important to risk stratify these TIA patients in the ED in the first place? Well, like a lot of areas of medicine that we see in the emergency room, the, the specific characteristics, the, the context informs what our response and disposition and follow-up is going to be from the emergency department to try and get the best patient outcomes. And I think we've seen some fairly dramatic changes in recent years in how we're sort of approaching this problem. For us, the vast majority of patients with TIA symptoms, we're going to be seeing within the 48-hour period. And those are patients who really are at high risk. So if they come in and they've got unilateral weakness, if they come in and they've got speech or language disturbance, if they come in and they've got hemisensory changes, those patients are all at fairly high risk. And it's really important for us to try and expedite that follow-up and the workup within a 24-hour period if we possibly can. And this has been now incorporated into the guidelines for management of TIA. And that's because there's evidence that early aggressive secondary prevention can really improve the short-term risk of stroke. If we've got patients and we're seeing them outside that 48-hour period, the risk starts to decline. So between 48 hours and two weeks, while they're still high risk, they can be followed up within probably a two-week period. If we're seeing them after two weeks from when they had their symptoms, you've got a little bit more time to sort that out. And the recommendations say that you can you can do that within a month of their initial presentation. So really, the risk stratification dictates what we do and how urgently we're going to do it. Dr. Himmel, let's talk a little bit about the A, B, C, D, 2 score, which we've been using for years to risk stratify TIA patients, but perhaps we shouldn't be. So just to remind our listeners, the elements of the A, B, C, D, 2 score include age over 60, initial BP of 140 over 90 or more, unilateral weakness, speech impairment, duration of symptoms, and a history of diabetes. So that's an ABCD2 score. Now, if you calculate this gentleman's ABCD2 score that we're talking about, he gets one point out of a possible seven, which is considered low risk. 
But as Dr. Dushensky just explained, we know he's actually high risk. So keeping in mind what Dr. Dushensky just said about this patient's risk, Dr. Himmel, how useful is the ABCD2 score for predicting stroke in TIA? Not very useful at all. It's not sensitive. It's not specific. And I would say the ABCD2 score is misleading. Now, it's clearly important because aggressive therapy will reduce the risk of a stroke by about 80%. That's been shown by Peter Rockwell a long, long time ago. Here's the problem with the ABCD2 score. You can be over 60, have high blood pressure, your symptoms can last for an hour, but it can be just loss of sensation. Is that a risky person for a stroke? No. Only two things really matter in assessing risk for a stroke, truly matter. Number one, the C, the clinical characteristics. Did you have a sudden loss of speech? Did you have sudden paralysis or paresis? That is a big, big, big deal. And I'll tell you why. If you had any one of those two, this is a real TIA, not a little baby sensory TIA. So that is the single most important thing. The next most important thing is that the first 48 hours after the event. Why is that? Because that's when all the bad things happen. If you've made it for two weeks, you've proved that you're going to probably be okay in the short run. So what really matters? Two things and two things only. The clinical features, the C, sudden onset of weakness, sudden onset of speech deficit, and early assessment within 48 hours. These patients will truly benefit by intervention. The ones who've made it two weeks or more don't need an intervention. They're going to do just fine. I'm overstating the point a bit, but they don't need urgent intervention now. They've proven they belong to the survivor group. All right. So basically, we should be forgetting about the ABCD2 tool. High-risk patients, according to the AHA Canadian guidelines that just came out in July 2018, dictate that it's those patients with unilateral weakness of the face, arm, and or leg, or speech or language disturbance. And that's pretty much it. So in this respect, it's quite simple. Now, one of the reasons we care if a patient is high risk or not is because it'll change what medications that are indicated for them. Dual antiplatelet therapy. So Dr. Himmel, first, how do you decide which patients are high risk enough to require dual antiplatelet therapy rather than just monotherapy with ASA or clopidogrel? And how do you dose the dual antiplatelet agents in the ED and thereafter? Well, the risk assessment is actually really easy. And here's exactly who needs dual antiplatelet therapy for three weeks and no more. For three weeks and no more. If you've had a sudden onset of loss of speech or aphasia, or a sudden onset of weakness of a limb or your face, you're high risk, period. Those people need dual antiplatelet therapy. Now, you're going to get some pushback. I'll tell you why. There was a famous study done about 10 years ago called the MATCH trial, which showed that dual antiplatelet therapy was harmful. It caused bleeding with no benefit. That trial looked at different patients. To get into that trial, you had, a, had to have had a TA within the previous six months, and you were kept on dual antiplatelet therapy for two years. Unhelpful and risky. Don't do it. 
the two more recent trials, the CHANCE trial and the POINT trial, ask a very different question. If you see your patient and immediately put them on dual antiplatelet therapy and only for three weeks, is there a benefit? And the answer is yes. You decrease absolute risk of a stroke by 1.5% with a very low risk of bleeding. Now, one of the studies, the, the POINT trial, actually kept patients on it for three months. But the reason the recommendation is in three months is that the benefit was up front, but the bleeding complications were delayed. So to get all the benefit and minimal harm, it's three weeks at the most. What's the loading dose? The loading dose for aspirin, depending if you're Canadian or American, is either 160 milligrams or 325 chewed. If you can't chew it, use a nasogastric tube. The dose of clopidogrel, well, the two studies use different loading doses. The first study from China used 300 milligrams of clopidogrel or Plavix. The point trial used 600. But I would say, what would most people do today who are really current and up-to-date with a high-risk CA? Aspirin, at least 160. I personally give 325. They're both fine. And number two, clopidogrel, 300 milligrams. The other drugs like ticagrelor have been looked at they're not used in strokes. So I, I would echo what uh, Walter already said in reference uh, to these studies. Certainly the MATCH trial back in 2004 not only showed a significant increase in bleeding risk, almost three times in the, in the dual treatment group, it also didn't really show any significant benefit to the combination therapy for the long-term outcomes for the patients. Uh, so that one almost seemed like it was going to put the nail in the coffin of, uh, of dual therapy, but the timing was the thing, again, that was really important. And I think that's a theme we're going to come back to again and again in this talk, is that timing is really critical for this. There was another trial, the FASTER trial in 2007, that looked at TIA or minor stroke within 24 hours, which was a smaller number of patients. It did show a lower ischemic event rate, but again, it showed a higher bleeding risk at 90 days. You know, the absolute risk reduction was about 3.8%. So it was real, but still relatively modest, but it was offset by the bleeding complications. Chance was the thing that really changed that. And it was a really large trial, had over 5,000 patients. It wasn't industry sponsored. And they were all looking at early minor stroke and TIA. And they got aspirin and they were randomized to clopidogrel or, or placebo. Again, they showed an absolute risk reduction from 11.7% to 8.2%. And interestingly, they didn't show any change in major hemorrhagic complications or moderate to severe severe bleeding and only a tiny increase, absolute increase in any bleeding. That kind of puzzled people a little bit and it was a little hard to understand and people weren't quite sure how to generalize this trial because it was only done in China. We weren't really sure if this was actually going to apply to other settings because some of the patient characteristics were a little bit different. But then Point came along and it really did help to clarify the issues, I, I think, for us. This was an international trial with almost 5,000 patients. It was stopped a little early. They only hit 84% of enrollment. But again, they showed a, an absolute reduction in major ischemic complications, about a percent and a half. Most of that, again, in the first week. 
And as Walter mentioned, when they dug down and drilled down into the data, what they saw is that the risk of bleeding, especially early, was actually low. So there was this sort of linear relationship. And that's what led to the recommendation that if you start dual antiplatelet therapy early and only continue it for a short term for up to 21 days, that you're not going to see the increase in major hemorrhagic complications that you saw in some of the earlier trials with a longer, more prolonged duration of therapy. So these findings from chance and point have led to the recommendations that dual antiplatelet therapy should be considered in the first uh, 21 days. And this has made its way into guidelines with a level B evidence recommendation. Beautiful summary of the literature. Now, a little bonus, extra nuanced pro tip from Walter here. Let's say the high-risk TIA patient you want to start on dual antiplatelet therapy has a history of peptic ulcer disease, or that let's say like they're an elderly drinker. What's the best medication to protect their gut? Well, clearly the best medication is a PPI. I hate to get too biochemical, but Plavix needs a two-step metabolism, including a cytochrome system called 2C19, and LOSEC and the older PPIs may inhibit 2C19. So if you read the cardiological literature, you'll find out time and time again, patients who were on clopidogrel and a PPI did not get the full benefit of clopidogrel. So you want to use a PPI that does not affect the cytochrome system. I'll give you one name worth remembering. Tecta or pantoprazole does not affect the cytochrome 2C19. If you're going to use clopidogrel, that's the one to use. I would give you the same advice for acute coronary syndromes. There's been tons of articles written about this in the last 10 years. So it's Tecta at the moment. It's not LOSEC or Omprazole, which affects 2C19. Don't use that one at all. So Dr. Himmel, if someone comes in already on one of the older PPIs and they have a TIA, it's probably worth switching them? Yes. All right. (laughs) Now, before we get on with our discussion of TIA, let's talk about TIA mimics, because this is where we can be uh, steered the wrong way quite often. Actually, the literature shows that anywhere between 5 and 31% of patients presenting with stroke-like symptoms actually have an alternative diagnosis. So Dr. Dushensky, what are some of the more common diagnoses that are misdiagnosed as TIAs? Well, I I think that's a a really relevant and important thing to talk about because, of course, getting to the right diagnosis is as important as the management of it. And many of the things in the differential diagnosis for this really don't benefit from all the advanced imaging that we otherwise do, and they're certainly not going to benefit from lytics or from endovascular therapy. Now, the list of mimics is quite long, and you can can look this up. There's There's lots of areas that talk about stroke mimics. The fact is that most of the diagnoses on the differential are actually going to be fairly apparent to you with a good history and physical exam and initial assessment, and you're going to be able to sort those out. But there are a few that are not so obvious and that really tend to give clinicians some troubles, three in particular, migraines, seizures, and psychiatric disorders, which range all the way from anxiety through to conversion disorders. And in fact, these things make up the most common mimics that are seen in follow-up in stroke clinics, along with the diagnosis of syncope. So in terms of sorting them out, timing again is often really critical. 
we have to remember that TIAs are vascular events, so they should be really abrupt in onset and maximal in intensity of symptoms at or close to onset with a gradual resolution, almost all of them in less than 60 minutes, most of them over, over just a few minutes. If there are multiple symptoms associated with this, they typically occur together at the onset for a TIA, as opposed to, say, the complex migraine, which tends to have a marching pattern through the different deficits or, or, or findings that they have. Remember that, again, these are deficits. They're a loss or reduction in neuron function. So beware positive-type symptoms that are excess neuron functions like scotomas, auras, uh, pain, twitching, jerking, those types of things are much more often associated with the mimics than a true TIA. Uh, I mentioned briefly that, that syncope or loss of consciousness is often ends up getting seen in stroke clinics and follow-up. Syncope or loss of consciousness is actually extremely rare as a, as a true TIA. Uh, and we should also remember that unilateral symptoms are much more likely to be associated with TIA than things that are more generalized. And vaguer things like memory loss, headache, blurry vision are going to be much more likely to be found to be mimics. In all of this, we have to consider the contextual factors like what's the age of the patient, what were the precipitating factors or associated things around that time? Did it happen with a postural change or head movement or after they took some medication? And look for associated symptoms that aren't so typical with a CNS event, vomiting, headache, presyncope. And all of these things looked at together will help you sort of shape your a priori probability for whether or not TIA actually becomes your operating diagnosis. Dr. Himmel, anything to add to that? Yeah, I just want to reemphasize something. Every mimic is easy to figure out, except for the three ones we've mentioned. And you have to keep this in your mind at all times. Migraines, seizures, and psychiatric disorders. Migraines, seizures, and psychiatric disorders. Those are the big three we're ruling out is 100% clinical and guesswork. Every neurologist will tell you, timing, 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 timing gives you the answer. A stroke or a TA, Boom, maximum in five, six, seven, eight seconds, period. Migraine will come on and peak after 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. It marches. And of course, a seizure will often hit the peak at around 30 to 40 to 50 seconds if it's a partial motor seizure. Timing is everything. Those are the three big conditions. Psychiatric issues? migraines, and seizures. By the way, if you give TPA to a stroke mimic, what's the risk of a bleed? Hmm. Multiple studies, anywhere from 0 to 1%. It exists. That's the risk of a bleed to give it to a mimic, anywhere from 0 to 1%. So it's an issue. All right, so those are the TIA mimics. I want to talk a little bit about the TIA causes. So let's say you've decided that this is, in fact, a TIA in the patient in front of you. It's not always the usual cardiovascular risk factors with a little clot that goes to a part of their brain or just decreased uh, perfusion to part of their brain. There's a variety of reasons why this can happen. So we know that there's three main types of strokes or TIAs, cardioembolic, uh, large artery, and lacunar 
and they make up about three quarters of all TIAs, but then there's another 25% left over. So Dr. Himmel, what are the more important causes of TIA and that other 25% that are kind of subtle and hard to pick up? So like, let's say a young guy like me comes in with TIA symptoms, what underlying causes come to mind? 15 to 20% of strokes occur in young people under 45 to 50, often with zero risk factors, zero risk factors. So what are the big things to look for? Number one, cervical artery dissection. Vertebral artery dissections and carotid artery dissections. That's a big one to look for where there's nothing else to find. Number two, patent foramen of alley. Now, what is the incidence of PFOs in the community at large? 20% of people in this room have a PFO. If you look at stroke patients, 40% have a PFO. PFOs, people with no risk factors, PFOs, and verbal artery dissections. Endocarditis is there, but that's not that common. And of course, undiagnosed paroxysmal atrial fibrillation is common. Those are the big three, in my opinion. Cervical artery dissections, a PFO, and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Often people with no risk factors, previously called cryptogenic strokes. You know, without going into the nitty-gritty details, Dr. Dushensky, what are, what are some of the pearls to get your spidey sense up that this might not be a straightforward TIA, besides the fact that they're a young person? So for those things that Walter just mentioned, I, I often think of these as the TIA and presentations. So with neurologic presentations, because they can often be really quite dramatic, we're prone to some anchoring bias when we see these patients. We tend to focus on the neurologic symptoms and may sometimes ignore other elements in the history or the physical exam that are actually quite relevant to the presentation. So the TIA and mantra can sometimes help you out with that. So if I see a patient with a TIA and chest pain or neck pain or facial pain, I'm going to think about dissection in my differential diagnosis. If it's TIA and fever or there's a new heart murmur, I'm going to think about endocarditis for that patient. If it's TIA and a patient with a history of sickle cell disease, well, that's going to be relevant in in that patient as well. And those are things to sort of keep in mind before we focus too much on those TIA symptoms when we're trying to sort out what the cause might be for it. I agree with everything we just heard, but I would say this. If it's a TAA with nothing else, it's still PFOs and cervical artery dissections. Half of dissections are painless. Half of PFOs are unknown, and it's a common condition. So far, we've talked a bit about risk stratification. We've talked about why risk stratification is important and how it will help you decide whether to start monotherapy or dual antiplatelet therapy. And we've covered some important TIA mimics as well as underlying causes to think about in younger patients. Now let's move on to the workup beyond plain CT and ECG. So Dr. Dushensky, how would you work up our 56-year-old guy with a speech deficit for eight minutes in a community ED or non-stroke center? 
So I think this is actually uh, another really important area of change in the management and, uh, and approach to this area recently. And we've certainly shifted to an approach where getting imaging of the brain and the vessels done quickly is where we're tending to head with these patients. Everybody's going to get the non-contrast CT head, and that's important. You want to rule out the bleed. You want to rule out the obvious mass lesion. But now we're looking at getting both a CT and a CT angiography of the extracranial and intracranial vessels all the way from the aortic arch right up to the vertex. And we're doing this because we want to both identify important stenosis that might be amenable to early intervention that can actually reduce the risk of adverse events. And as Walter just mentioned, every once in a while, we're going to identify those patients who actually have a dissection of those vessels where they didn't have clinical symptomatology along with that. And that's going to significantly affect how we approach these people. I think it's really important for people to have discussions in their department and in their institution to figure out how to operationalize this, because this is a change from what we have traditionally been doing. So you have to have some agreement or some protocol in your shop in order to figure out how you're going to do this. And it's affected by a lot of factors. Do you have a tech that's available at all times who's able to actually do contrast studies? Do you have somebody available who can actually read it? Uh, if you don't have those things, but you have resources where you practice, where you can get rapid 24-hour follow-up and get these things done, then that might be fine. If you are doing this in the emergency, you've got to look at certain considerations. Are you going to keep that patient on the table after you do their non-con head, get a wet read, and then shoot the contrast study? Uh, do you need to have your creatinine back before you do that if you're trying to expedite the workup? All of these things need to be decided, and so that's a multidisciplinary discussion within your department and within your organization to come up with a local approach that's actually going to work for you in order to get this done efficiently. All right. I want to talk a little bit about Holter monitors and echoes. So I've always personally found it a challenge uh, to decide which patients with a TIA require an echo or a Holter monitor and when that should be done. You know, should it be done now? Should it be done next week? Should it be done in a day? Um, this patient is in atrial fibrillation in the ED, so that's pretty much a slam dunk for cardioembolic TIA. So we won't really need a Holter monitor in that case. I think we'd all agree about that. And for many patients, history, physical exam, and ECG can point to a cardioembolic stroke, like if they just had a recent MI or heart failure or prior rheumatic disease, for example. Uh, but some patients might have paroxysmal AFib, as Walter alluded to earlier. That's the cause of their TIA, and they'd never know it, and you'd never know it. And an echo can diagnose structural cardiomyopathies, intraventricular thrombus, vegetations, PFOs, tumors, and those are all really important to know about. So Dr. Himmel, what are the indications for an urgent echo and or Holter monitor in a patient who presents to the ED with a TIA? Uh, not a problem if they're being admitted to the hospital. They're all going to get monitored. If they're not, here are the indications I would think that make a lot of sense to me. Number one, severe heart disease. So they've got severe left ventricular impairment, severe coronary artery disease, previous myocardial infarction, a large atria, rheumatic heart disease. These people need an echo because they're high risk of having clots. How about the other investigations urgently? To my mind, it's very simple. You haven't got a clue what causes their stroke? You haven't got a clue what causes a stroke. They haven't got risk factors for heart disease. They haven't got risk factors for lacunar infarcts. 
you got a big question mark there, and they've had a very worrisome TIA. These are the patients who would benefit from whole-term monitoring and an echo to look for a PFO. Now, we know if you monitor people after a TA for 24 hours who came in in normal sinus rhythm, 5% will have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. David Gladstone here in Toronto showed if you monitor these people for four weeks, 15 to 20% have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. If you haven't got a cause, you're going to have to get a halter. Why does this matter? Because there's only three treatments dual antiplatelet therapy, or anticoagulation, or surgery. That's what you want to find out. What about anticoagulation, Walter? You know, in this patient, we discovered new AFib. Uh, we know that from the latest guidelines, the Canadian guidelines on AFib, that according to the CHAD 65 tool, that we're expected to consider starting anticoagulant meds, you know, NOAX or warfarin in the ED for anyone over the age of 65 with paroxysmal AFib, right? But they don't mention in these guidelines if we should be doing this for patients who present with TIA or stroke. So Dr. Himmel, first, should our 56-year-old guy with eight minutes of slurred speech be started on an anticoagulant? And second, should someone with a stroke be started on an anticoagulant if you discover new AFib? Okay, guys, listen up. This is really important. Do not anti coagulate strokes. If you want to give them DFE prophylaxis, that's fine. If someone's had a stroke with a residual defect or a big, massive TIA for six hours, you do not anticoagulate strokes. And I'll tell you why. You may improve the chances of them not having another embolism, but you're going to get a hemorrhagic transformation. So don't anticoagulate strokes, at least not in the first two, three, four, or five days. So now let's move on to the question, should he get an anticoagulant? If the CT scan is normal, and if they've recovered completely, and if you're convinced this was a TA, and if you're pretty convinced the amount of brain damage was negligible, you can anticoagulate them at that time with a direct oral anticoagulant. On the other hand, if you think they've had a mild or moderate or severe stroke, you have to delay anticoagulation. And all the experienced neurologists will tell you, if it's a mild stroke, don't anticoagulate for four or five days. A moderate stroke, don't anticoagulate for a week to seven or eight days. If it's a massive stroke, don't anticoagulate for two weeks or more. If this person had a stone-cold normal CT scan, an absolutely normal neurological, including gait, tandem gait, Romberg, Babinski's, and reflexes, if I was convinced they did not have brain injury or brain death of cells, I'd anticoagulate them right there. All right. And in, in terms of timing, would you say under an hour of symptoms, then it's probably safe to anticoagulate, assuming as well that perfectly normal neurologic exam and all the other stuff you said? You know, in terms of timing, because- this guy, it's eight minutes, so that's pretty clear if he's got a perfectly normal CT and exam. So I tell you what I would do in the real world. It's five or six or seven or eight minutes. I anticoagulate them. If it's been an hour, that's a long time for a TA, guys. An hour is a long time. I talk to neurologists. They listen. You want me to anticoagulate them now or wait a couple of days? I mean, if you have atrial fibrillation and you've thrown a clot, what's your chance of a stroke in the next two weeks? We know the answer. It's about 2% a week for two weeks. 
2% a week for two weeks. So if I'm worried, I'll wait a day or two. I will speak to somebody about that one. You're all just very uneasy about rapid anticoagulation. In the days of warfarin, when you could start to run warfarin, they wouldn't be anticoagulated for four or five days. It didn't matter. But in the days of direct anticoagulants, when you're anticoagulated immediately, it may matter. I'd be conservative unless I was totally convinced they had no death of brain tissue. That is to say, no stroke. All right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about disposition. You know, I remember the head of stroke at Trillium and St. Mike's, uh, Daniel Selchin, explaining uh, in a previous podcast that it's high-risk TIA patients that he thinks should be admitted way more than the mild completed stroke uh, you know, who presents outside the throm- uh, thrombolytic window. You know, that we can save a high-risk TIA patient from having a massive stroke, but that once they've stroked out, uh, the benefit of admitting, of admitting them is, is far from huge. So, you know, after careful consideration of the work of these patients, who do you decide who stays and goes? Dr. Dushensky, uh, what are your criteria for admission for patients with TIA? So again, a lot of that is really going to depend on what your local resources are and the ability to get these patients into rapid follow-up. For the patients who are really, truly high risk, some of the patients Walter was talking about here already, for the patients who have been having crescendo symptoms, for the patients who you've got a really high suspicion that there's something extremely unstable going on, those are patients who you're probably going to err on the side of referring and admitting into hospital. But we certainly do have evidence now that if you have resources in place for rapid follow-up to complete the initial urgent workup, that it's okay to do that on an outpatient basis, improperly selected patients. And you've got all the usual caveats about properly selecting that person, uh, being able to make sure that they can comply and follow up with the instructions that you're giving them and that their social circumstances are, are reasonable to consider this. And really, we want you in that TIA or stroke clinic within less than 48 hours in order to get those further workups and interventions done and started. This is also part of the reason why we're leaning towards doing the CT angiography early now, because if we find that symptomatic carotid stenosis in the patient with the TIA, or we find that dissection, that is going to change what we're going to do in our disposition decision-making. We know that uh, in the patients with uh, symptomatic carotid stenosis, those patients are at uh, are a subset that's at higher risk for short-term stroke and adverse event as well. And so we want to be able to triage those patients and get them set up for a carotid endarterectomy or carotid stenting in the short term. Now, that's still going to be the small minority of our patients. Most studies show that it's less than 10% of the people that you work up who you're going to find that in. But when you do find it, it's important. And again, timing is essential. You, you're going to want to look to get that surgery done, ideally within two to seven days afterwards. And for most places, that's going to be hard to set up on an outpatient basis. So that's going to prompt you probably to admit them into hospital. All right, time for the big review of TIA. Let's first review risk stratification. And you guessed it, it's all about timing. So what's the chance that a TIA patient you see in the ED will have a stroke within the next two days? Well, historically, before we started treating these patients aggressively, it was as high as 10% even on treatment. But the most recent data suggests that it's only about 1% because of rapid, aggressive treatment, which is oh so important. And the patients most likely to stroke out 
are not necessarily the ones that score highest on the ABCD2 score. That score really isn't valid anymore. So luckily, it's a lot more simple than that. The high-risk patients are the ones with either true motor deficit of a limb or the face or a speech deficit. These are the patients who will likely benefit from dual antiplatelet therapy for three weeks only. Remember that one, for three weeks only. And they're the ones we need to get worked up for their eligibility for endodirectomy within 48 hours. Plus, don't forget the patient with AFib who presents with a TIA. They're also really at high risk, and they might need anticoagulation if they're not already anticoagulated. So that's risk stratification. What about TIA mimics? The three big ones to look out for are migraines, seizures, and psychiatric disorders. And again, you're going to be way more likely to distinguish these from TIA if you drill down in your history on the timing. The onset of a TIA, a few seconds. Seizures, about 30 seconds. And migraines, remember that migraines march, and they march over a few minutes. Now, when it comes to the causes of TIA, we need to think about a few specific causes in patients that don't have classic cardiovascular or cardioembolic risk factors. So when the young woman with zero risk factors comes in with TIA symptoms, you need to think about four underlying diagnoses. First, cervical artery dissection, which don't forget can be painless. Next, PFOs. Next, undiagnosed paroxysmal AFib. And finally, endocarditis. Now, a nice pearl that Dr. Deshensky mentioned when it comes to suspecting some of these causes is the TIA and presentation. So TIA symptoms and neck pain, think dissection. TIA symptoms and fever or new heart murmur, think endocarditis. We then discussed the workup of TIAs. And I got to say, if I had TIA symptoms or my mother had TIA symptoms, I'd not only want a plain CT to rule out a bleed or a mass, but I'd want an urgent CT angiogram of my head and neck to make sure I hadn't had a neck dissection, or in my mother's case, that she doesn't have a carotid lesion amenable to endarterectomy. Now, if you don't have quick access to CTA, an ultrasound of the neck is the next best option, but it needs to be done within 48 hours. Then we ask the question, who needs an urgent echo? And there's two groups to think about echoes in. One is the patient with known heart disease, if they've had a history of NMI or rheumatic heart disease, severe valvular disease, even severe coronary artery disease. They're high risk for clots and they may need anticoagulation. And the second group who need an urgent echo and Holter monitor, those are the patients that come in and you have no idea why they have their TIA. They have zero risk factors and that's when you want to search for those other causes. So you got to ask yourself, is this a PFO that they can pick up on an echo? Is this rheumatic heart disease? Is this undiagnosed fib that they need a Holter monitor for? And these are important because the treatment's going to change based on these findings. And the last thing we talked about was the timing of anticoagulation for patients who you know have AFib when they present with their TIA. And there's that timing theme again. So if you're sure it's a TIA with zero residual symptoms, signs, or findings on plain CT, consider anticoagulating them in the ED. If you're not sure, give your neurologist a call. So that about wraps it up for our part one on TIA. Part two is going to be on stroke 
And man, things have changed drastically in the last year on the treatment of stroke. There's lots of controversy. There's lots of change in terms of the protocol of when to call a code stroke. We're learning more and more about which patients are amenable to embolectomy therapy. And Walter and Dave and I are going to give you a whole slew of pearls and pitfalls when it comes to treating stroke. And before I leave you this time, I just wanted to remind you that EM Cases is now on Spotify. If you use Spotify a lot, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. The podcast camp that we had in mid-October with special guest faculty Hans Rosenberg and with Rajiv Thavanathan from Best Case Ever podcast and Richard Huang, who edits our podcast, it was a huge success and so much so that we're planning for another podcast camp next September, most likely. And we have a very special guest faculty who will announce at a later date who's going to be joining us for that podcast camp. If you haven't checked it out already, the EMU 365 videos are the best plenary talks from EMU 2018. We've released a few of them already on the EM Cases website. Uh, Just go to the EM Cases website and click on the EMU 365 video button. And lastly, it's not going to be long before we release our free open access quiz vault where you can test yourself on pretty much any EM Cases episode that's been published. So until next time, take it easy. Thank you.